Thank you for, for sharing those needs and those requests. We'll go ahead and turn to Psalm 119, verse 137, as a couple thoughts here as we begin. We um, Next week we'll be doing two stanzas because they follow the same pattern of, of going from agony to adoration. And this is kind of a, a peaceful stanza. And talking about the Lord's righteousness, we started two weeks ago. And so next week we'll do the next two stanzas together, follow the same pattern. Then we have two more after that to, to end our Psalm 119. We'll have a couple weeks between that and the and the summer schedule where we're looking at uh, the subject of being peacemakers. And it's amazing how being a peacemaker applies to so many different areas of your life, whether it be husband and wife, whether it be with your children, whether it be with friends and co-workers and family. And... Uh, just a, a great book with a lot of good good resources, so we'll be looking at that for our summer series and announcing that a little bit later as well. You know, there's a great... <clears throat> it's difficult, isn't it, whenever you're, you've got burdens to carry, and, and a lot of these prayer requests that we mentioned are indicative of a lot of the things that we have in our heart and mind that we carry with us daily... That, that weigh us down, that, that, that just uh, occupy our mind. I know if I wake up in the middle of the night, very hard going back to sleep. You know, if I wake up any time after 3 o'clock, this is hard. My mind starts spinning. I'm like, Lord, can my mind not spin? But the more I think about not spinning, the more it spins. So um, it's amazing how, how these things can, and it almost like to me, it's almost like this, this pressure cooker kind of builds up. You, know, you just feel the pressure and the release moment really doesn't come from having answers or being assured, oh, it's going to be okay, or it really is contemplating and resting upon the Lord. It really is. It's, it's resting in who he is. And he has this, this peaceful pause in this stanza here where he just rests and contemplates everything that he knows about the word, everything he's been talking about the word, he, he'll rest in the righteousness of God. God is right. He's righteous, and he rests in that truth. And then he'll go back to agony and adoration in the next two stanzas. But we have this, in the middle of this, we have just this contemplative time. And it's just, it's encouraging to me because I, I've got many plates like many of you do. All these plates are spinning. I'm waiting for a number of them to fall and break and drop the ball, whatever all these turns were used, you know, and... But there's just that sweet moment when you feel the sigh of relief and you just, it's that moment where okay, Lord, this is yours. I mean, people, I mean, times I've encouraged people, it's not just about taking something to the cross, but it's leaving it at the cross, right? That's the, the challenge is not bringing our burdens to Christ. <laughs> the challenge is leaving them at his feet. We tend to give them to him, then I'll, I'll take it back with me on my way out. And uh, that obviously is, is unhelpful. In Psalm 130, verse 137, I'm only going to have the outline out here this morning. I'll focus more on just getting some of my thoughts together and didn't overwork the, the PowerPoint today. talks about verse 137. So let's read this together. The, the obvious key word is, is, is seen here six times in these eight verses. He says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. 
I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. I think many of us can <laughs> trouble has found me. <laughs> anguish has found me, but your commandments are my delight. And your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding. The only request, petition, contrary to the previous stanza, the only petition in this stanza is the one that he ends with in verse 144. Lord, give me understanding that I may may live. And when he means live, he doesn't necessarily mean life as in breathing, but live to its fullest for the Lord. I mean, many people are living but not living. He's talking about living fully for the Lord and living freely uh, in that way. So... We talked about the introduction part last time, and I'll come back on that. It's been a couple of weeks. Many things have happened since, and I know that it's not the first thing on our mind. Wayne Grudem defines righteousness this way, and it's helpful in two aspects. He says, God's righteousness means, I think I have just two, I think I have this quote here, though, and then, then the outline. He says, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. God's always right. Now listen, as a husband, I'm always right. <laughs> almost. But I have to, I have to put an almost. Uh, when your children are you know, instructing your children, you want your children, hey, I've been there before. And when your little 16-year-old kid talks like, you know, their little part-time job, working 15 hours a week bagging groceries, is paying for all the bills, and they're self-supportive, self-made child... You want to step in there as a parent says, let me explain to you a few things about what is right and, and uh, explain to them a few things about life. God is always right, and he always acts in accordance with what is right. And, taking part of that definition, he is in himself the final standard of what is right. There's where we part ways with the creator. Not just he's always right, but he's the standard of what is right. What a strong statement the psalmist is making here. After going through the, the love of the word and the truth of the word and exalting the word, and one key piece he's been showing over and over is that loving God is loving his word. Loving his word is loving God. Those two, those two things are inseparable in his mind. Now, you add to that, he is always right. And not just God is always right, but his word is always right. God is always just, he's always good, and his word is always just and always good. We mentioned this two weeks ago, we can easily kind of find a gray area where he finds no gray area. In other words, I read the word and find this word to be, oh, this, you know, I love God, but I don't know about this word over here. I know God is just and good, he's right. I know God's right, but I don't know if I really, man, this seems a little bit, this word over here seems a little bit unright. And we, we start putting our own spin to, to what we're reading. He, he doesn't leave any room for that. I love God. I love his word. I love his word. I love God. God is right. His word is right. God is just. His word is just. There's no, there's no room there for, for, for any distinction there. So as, as you and I come to the word of God to read it, to study it, we're, we're understanding who God is. We're, we're reading his word. We're loving his word. And we're, we're receiving his word as being that of a God that is right, as from a righteous God. Just 
contemplating that for me has been just just encouraging to know because we're surrounded by a lot of unrighteousness a lot more than we ever thought possible someone was telling me the other day just how wow the, the, the wickedness of the world and where have we where have we gone in the past five years in the past three years the unrighteousness put on display Pharaoh when he was uh, in Exodus 9 he was you know, contemplating letting the people go he went back and forth a number of times, and in Exodus 9, he goes, This time I have sinned. I like that, you know. All right, this time I've sinned. I admit it. I sinned. He says, The Lord is in the right, and my people are in the wrong. There's words that, that dichotomy between us and God. And Pharaoh saying, Hey, God is in the right, and my people are in the wrong. God is always in the right. In our outline here, and, and I just post it up here, and I'll leave the outline up here. The psalmist here in this stanza is looking at God's word from the perspective of a righteous God. He's looking at God's word from, you know, he, we talked about Hebrew poetry that accentuates, that, that circles around, and takes the truth and builds on that truth. And, and here he's going to build on that truth from the perspective of God is a righteous God and He's right in how He rules, and His word is therefore right. And His word, and you see, it builds on this word is forever. Two things here that He begins with: one, God is righteous in who He who He is. He begins by saying, "Righteous are You, O Lord." We talked about the word righteous a little bit last time, but it's the idea of uh, being righteous in the way one governs, being right in in one's cause being right in one's character. I mean, the all-encompassing notion of what it means to be righteous and to be right. Not just, not just that his, you know, it's not just truth and, and error. It's right in one's cause, right in one, how one governs, how he exercises his sovereignty, how he exercises his will, how he fulfills his purposes. Now, begin digging into that. Dig, dig into that a little deeper, what it means for God to be right and exercise his righteousness and how he governs in his cause he has a righteous cause and he has a righteous character to exercise and to fulfill that cause and everything after that is measured according to his righteousness and resting in that boy there is just a a tremendous peace in in resting in that especially not just when, but especially when I don't, I don't see it or I don't understand it. There's some things that are obvious to us. I mean, when this mass murderer, you know, sadistic murderer gets the death penalty, you might say, well, that, that was deserving. That might be the easy spectrum of what it seems, you know, is, is right and just. But let's get down into the little weeds of things. And when we start thinking that, well, man, you know, I had my car break down this week. Uh, the, the washer went out. My kids are sick. Man, I've, you know, God, I've had enough. All of a sudden, a little nose of righteousness starts to shift a little bit and, and the feeling like, oh, you know, now I understand righteousness over here, but what about this doesn't seem right anymore? And we can sit quickly beyond this shifting sand of understanding that. How many times I need, I need to rest in that idea of God being right and how he governs and right in his cause and right in his character? 
Uh, one author says it this way, the idea of a conformity to a norm seems to be the basic significance of the root word being used here, which means God's righteousness is measured to conformity to a norm. What norm? His norm, his righteousness. That's the only standard of what a righteousness and how it's measured. A f- more fuller definition of this by Cranfield says this. He says, when the term righteousness is used in connection with the conduct of a person, it refers to the fulfillment of the obligations arising from a particular situation or the demands of a particular relationship. So he, he develops this. He says, as it relates to God's relationship to man, righteousness is one of God's fundamental attributes, and it can express itself in the rewarding of the faithful and in the punishing of the wicked. He says there's a legal sense tied to it that says that means that God is beyond reproach. There's a legal understanding of that term. God is righteous means he is beyond reproach. He cannot be accused of being unrighteous. He cannot be, he's beyond reproach. And that no accusation can be brought against him. So th- he says at the root definition and understanding of the word, there's a sense, there's a legal understanding of one being right. So we understand the legal aspect. When you go to a judge, he makes a, a, he makes a judgment as to what is right in one situation or another. What he's saying is as it pertains to God, there's a legal connotation here that says he is beyond reproach, and no accusation can be brought against him when it pertains to his righteousness. And then the, the word he accentuates here in verse 137, the first part of this verse, he says, righteous are you. So he starts with that declaration. Then he says what? O Lord. He uses a word that is found oftentimes, of course, in Scripture describing uh, the Lord, but it's a word used to what? It's, it's the, the one that is self-existent, the all-sufficient one. So he, he couples these two things together by saying you're righteous, you're above and beyond reproach, you're the right one, you're the standard of what is right. O Lord, O Lord what? Self-existing one, self-sustaining one. In other words, in the, in the name that he's declaring is the, the obvious fact that there's, there's no possibility of bringing any accusation to the one that is self-sustained, self-sufficient, self-existing one. So you see how he, he brings those two pieces as a strong declaration to begin his stanza. Righteous are you, O Lord. And then, going back to his common theme of not separating God and his word, he says what? And right are your rules. Because you're right... Because you're just, because you're, uh, you're Yahweh, you're the self-existing one, self-sustaining one, your rules are, that flow from you are right as well. The character and nature of God is characterized by what is right. As you walk through Scripture, and I, I've got some verses here, I don't know, perhaps I'll just mention them and we'll, uh, you could think, reading through those, you could do a quick research in Scripture Find out how, how the term righteousness is used. We see that a lot in Romans. Uh, Brian's been covering that. Uh, Romans 1, Romans 3 talks a lot about the righteousness of God. Uh, so we've been seeing that even on, on Sunday mornings. The Beatitudes make a lot of references to the righteousness of God, hunger, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, Matthew 6, right? The righteousness is to, be, is to be desired, is to be pursued. It says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So even with a with a strong understanding of what it means to to have a righteous God, as we read through scripture, even in the New Testament, what does it mean to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness? You pursue him because everything he is and everything he does is is right. And all these things will be added to you. 
Jesus Christ is called the righteous ones in First John. So a lot of First John two one, he says that when we come before the Father, we have an advocate, the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. The reason why, of course, we could come before God because we have an advocate that is righteous because we are obviously are are not. God is the standard of righteousness. Someone said that if you want to know what is righteous, turn to God. If you want to see what is righteous, turn to Jesus. And he is, uh, has exemplified that and modeled that for us. So he is righteous. See in the outline there, he's righteous in who he is. He's righteous in what he, he says. The righteous God is always righteous in what he says and what he reveals in his word. And these are the two things that I, I mentioned earlier, that it's a common emphasis through the psalmist here that God and his word are one and the same. Loving one is loving the other. Obeying one is obeying the other. Knowing one is knowing the other. Being passionate about one is being passionate about the other. So that's, that's just a strong theme that I walk away with with the psalmist so that every time I open up the word of God, it's not about reading it with this, I'm going to say, with a critical eye. Someone was sharing this the other day about, uh, about someone coming to the Lord, Lord, and they were just talking about, yes, trusting Jesus, but um, when I read the Word, you know, the Word is, has mistakes in it. So I have, we have to read the Word with a critical eye so we could understand what's... I'm thinking, well, so, so who becomes the standard? Who becomes the measure? If you're going to go to God's Word and say, well, the God's Word has not been preserved for us, not infallible, so God's Word has not been preserved for us, so how do you go to God's Word? Now, who becomes the standard? Well, there really couldn't be a million people in the desert. I mean, that seems a little bit ridiculous to be have that many Israelites. Or there couldn't be, I mean, come on, you know, 50,000 were killed in this battle. It's probably really 5,000, a little typo there. I mean, it's amazing how you can go to God's Word and start rationalizing. Boy, did, when he really mean, does he really mean hate? I mean, he really... We, we start taking things from our perspective, from our standard. And the more you walk away from the Lord, the more you walk away from his word, the more you'll see in your speech and your thought process that you're, you're far removed from his standard of righteousness. When you hear someone talk about, well, so-and-so, I, I, you know, we really don't get along, and I, I know what they did to me, I'll, I'll never forgive them. Well, when someone talks that way, you know how far they are from walking from the word. Because God's word repeatedly talks about his standard of forgiveness. So you can see by, by the way we think, by the way we walk our lives, how we've, been, how we've made that distinction between God's word and how we live our lives. And when I go to God's word, I want to see it as, as righteous as the one, of course, as is author. His rules are right. What's obvious to us is no, there's no lies. There's no deception. Uh, the righteousness and faithfulness characterized in God's word, which is what he describes here. He talks about in verse 138, you've appointed your testimonies in what? In righteousness and in all faithfulness. He says this twice, actually, this idea of God's word being faithful and true. I wonder if I ask you guys on a scale from 1 to 10, how, how, how faithful is God's word? I like the way he says it in verse 141, in case, well, 140, in case we don't get there. He says what? Your promise is what? What does your, what does your version say in verse 1, 140? Well tried. Well tried. That's beautiful. Knowing what he had already experienced, right? He says your promise is well tried and your servant what? Loves it. 
In other words, it's his, the, God's word has been tried and tested and has proven itself to be faithful. Have you ever seen someone that's, that's young in their faith and you're telling them, listen, trust me, make the right decision, right by God's standard, make the right decision. That seems so difficult in this moment in time, but on the other side of that, you'll reap the joys and the blessings that come from it. I've been in front of many people faced with those kind of decisions and say, I know it seems painful. I know it seems difficult. I know it seems costly. I know it seems embarrassing. I know it seems too... Di- I, I know all these things that seem like the reality and insurmountable in front of you. But God's standard and righteousness is here. If you conform to that, on the other side of that, you'll discover the faithfulness of His Word, that His Word is tried and true. Boy, I, I have to be reminded of that so, so many times that serving a righteous God comes with its challenges. We're gonna, we do find ourselves in more and more society that's antagonistic to spiritual things. We're going to be more and more accused of being intolerant. We're going to be more and more... Now, just, just words that not that long ago did not cause issues are causing issues within the church. We used to be... I mean... Don't think that the gender issue is so far removed from the church. It seems like this extreme issue that's way outside the church. No, they've walked right in the doors with people that are nominal believers who are detached from the standard of God who have sought another standard for their lives. And it's true with gender issues. We've already been overwhelmed with the fear and anxiety issues that society has embraced in one way and it's... and the church has tried to adapt to it, continually removing itself from, from God's righteous standard and understanding of these things. The righteous ruler, verse 138, has righteous rules that have been bestowed. It said they're appointed. They're bestowed upon us. They're not like sitting here on a shelf. Here, you may go to these, you may go here and choose that if you would like. No, they're, they're appointed to us, verse 138. They're, they're bestowed upon us. They're, by, they're there by divine imposition. And then he describes here, puts the emphasis on the fact that everything that flows from God in his dealing with man flows from his righteousness and as such is what? Faithful. In all faithfulness. Everything that flows from God and his word is faithful and true. Listen. Yes, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it. It is. And I'm not putting myself up here I was being the model for that. The Lord's going to knock me down this week, make sure I learn a few other lessons. And I'm kind of tired of learning lessons. You ever get tired of learning lessons? <laughs> Lord, I learned. Thank you. But I, more often than I care, I find myself challenged in these areas and reminded that and I need to be continually reminded God is faithful in these <clears throat> the second part of the outline he says talks about God's right the righteous God word is to be obeyed verse 139 be passionate for God's word interesting here he says my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your word now two stanzas ago he actually used the same kind of parallel analogy two stanzas ago when we talked about the he talked about the unrighteous man being un, uh, unfaithful to the word and then he's like Therefore I, as if 
what he's done here, he's contrasted two stanzas ago where he contrasts a person that is unbelieving, right? He says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. So in other words, now the, the idea of forgetting, I think you understand, he doesn't mean, you know, when you tell your child to do something, you wonder, did he really hear me? Maybe, maybe he didn't hear me. Yeah, he heard you. <laughs> That's the problem. Uh, so many, so many times, you know. Now you, you, you throw the word Disney out there, and it's, you know the ears perk, and they run, come running. So they, they know what they hear, what not to hear, right? <clears throat> so the idea of forgetting your words is not that they actually forgot; they, they're choosing to ignore God's word, and that's much more damning than just the idea that somehow they have not been given God's word. <clears throat> We saw this back in verse 126. He says, your law had been broken, therefore I love your commandments. Here he says, those who forget your words, my, my zeal consumes me. In other words, his response to the man who is forgetful and does, or ignores God's word and chooses to act differently, he says, it re- actually invigorates him to be, have more zeal to be attached to, to the word. I, I would encourage us, even in, in our own societal context, a response to an unbelieving world and, un, and just a response to a world who doesn't, attach itself to God's standard of truth is having a double down zeal for God's word. May our response be, I'm, I'm going to make sure I stay closer to God's word. And when we see the world drifting the way they do and their own lost thoughts, man, may it just invigorate us to be zealous for God's word. And that's what his response to man who forgets his precepts or who forgets his word, that's why he says two verses later, I will not Yet I do not forget your precepts as the world would. The last stanza ended with the the ongoing grief that he saw and felt by seeing the unbelieving world. And here we see again the, 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 the response to the forgetful man who doesn't measure himself to God's word is to be zealous for, for God's word. And his grief is that they're not attached to his word. I encourage parents often and often our, 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 our task as parents is to what? Is to train our children to love the Lord and follow his standard, not our standard. So many times as parents we're grieved because they don't follow our standards. They don't like the things we like. Mark was here teasing him about his baseball because, boy, Mark's a passionate guy about baseball. Someone else following that passion, right? Our zeal should be that our, our children are zealous for the things of the Lord and the, his righteous standards. He describes here in verse 140 a love for God's word. I mentioned that earlier, just the idea of being well tried. Boy, I, I wish I could take just a whole Sunday school time just to discuss, tell me, how was God's word well tried in your life? That's just, if you don't have that kind of testimony or you're not able to, that, there's just something beautiful of sitting here and just talking to us. When I, when I go out, and walk my dog. It's like having a dog is probably a good excuse to go walking. I might I might keep a dog just for that reason. It's so enjoyable to walk out and what just affirming how God's word has been well tried and proven to be faithful in my life. I don't sit around, oh Lord, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? I said, Lord, you are true and you are good and you are right. He describes the love of God's word and God's word that's been well tried. And then in verse 141, he faithfully says, 
I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. What does he mean by that? Of course, he, he's not describing that in, in the fact that before God is, he's despised. He's, he's despised before man. The Bible says that taking God at his word will make you a foolish man in the eyes of the world. Taking God at his word, I mean, and for those nominal believers who found a refuge in society thinking that society we all agree that it's crazy for uh, to say that a man could birth a child well the, the, that kind of foolishness is going to creep in a lot closer to home than what you think and we're going to be considered he says the description he's given here tr- that i am small and i am despised is from the perception of the one who has forgotten god's word who ignores god's word who does not measure your life by god's standard the more you're committed for christ the more you're going to be an odd person a boy you're standing by the righteous one you're standing in in fellowship with the one who is right i mean where else you want to be that's where i want to be um Quickly, here are the last the last three verses. He he asks to this, and he grows on this by saying what he talks about. The <clears throat> he talks about twice here about not forgetting his word, not forgetting his precepts, like the, the foes that forget his words. Why? Verse forty two. Your righteousness is righteous. What forever, forever. I mean, if you're going to anchor yourself in something that is unchangeable, the unchanging God, and the unchanging word. The unchanging God, and unchanging, there's nothing more comforting in, in being able to rest in that which is unchangeable. God's righteousness is eternal. What is right today is relative to the world and how they, their new discoveries and new behavior observations, whatever, they put all that into the mix. But what is right might be relative in the world, but thankfully it's been tried and true and faithful as it pertains to God's rule. God's righteous rules are therefore everlasting, and they're eternally righteous. His word doesn't waver. His word is not redefined. And so in a world where you're, you're, you and I are surrounded by lies, so often we're ready to even embrace some of them, may we be attached to the righteous God who is righteously, eternally righteous. Then he said, the trouble and anguish that has found him are but temporal in nature, right? He, he'll contrast the instant trouble and anguish that he's experiencing with the everlasting, forever righteousness of God, which he depends on. His delight is in that which is eternal. Every one of us, whenever we're faced with anguish and trials, is always very, no, very narrow in focus. We've got this narrow focus of what we're experiencing now, and understandably so. But his delight is in that which is eternal. I've, I've encouraged parents, I may have told you this, don't forget, you're in this for the long game. I know what you're facing right now, but you're in this for the long game. Sometimes we make a lot of compromises because we think in doing so we're going to rescue our kids, we're going to save our kids. We're gonna... You're in this for the long game. And the long game is being measured, being tried and true by what is righteous and what is true. Then we find his final, his final request here in this last verse of this stanza. Give me understanding that, that, I may, that I may live. Boy, just contemplating that truth this week can be such a, 
such a stress release that uh, beats a lot of the medication that is often, often offered to us. So I trust that this week even you can contemplate that. Next, two, next week we'll be looking at the next two stanzas. How he goes from agitation to adoration in both of those stanzas. We're looking at those together next week. So looking forward to that. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Father, we, we thank you that we serve the self-existent, self-sufficient one, the righteous one. May we, Lord, rest in that truth. May we see the faithfulness of that truth. And Lord, I've, I've seen it tried and put to the test in my life. And Lord, sometimes in the moment, I'm not sure how it's going to play out, Lord, but I, I rest in knowing that this is who you are. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, today I don't know what each individual person might be facing, but I know we all face these questions. May we learn to rest in you, Lord. We thank you for our time. Pray for your pastor as he brings the word in the second service. We commit this to you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.